Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 46. Another day, another dollar, another podcast. Jen, for are you. you making dollars? I am not making dollars. <laughs> I was like, what have you got I'm going on? Making muffins, biscuits. Ooh. I'm baking I made my a way cake. the quarantine. You did? <laughs> yeah, man. Nice. I made, a, I made a corona cake. It was delicious. Oh, it sounds not. When you put the corona in front of it, but I'm sure that it was. <laughs> Dude, we have to discuss real quick. I need to um, do a correction. Okay. Do you remember last week when I did the story about Mark and Julie bowling? And I said I that sure do. Mark was set to get out of jail in 2023, which is in three I know, we years. Were, we were nuts. all upset about it. We were like, that is not enough time. Well, someone – you know them, right? Who sent us the – Yeah, my friend Jeff and his wife April is actually from Rocky Mount, which is what where this all took place. And so he was like, oh, my God, I bet she knows them. And she didn't know them personally, but she did know – of. she was like, oh, yeah, I know of the funeral homes. The um, famous. But, yeah, so then he sent me a link that said that he died – he, died. he actually died in jail in 2018, and it says that he died of natural causes at the Samson Correctional Institution, where he was serving 189 to 236 month sentence for second degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. So, yeah, it doesn't say; it just says natural causes. But at 47, right? Are causes natural? Mm, I, don't I don't know. I don't know if a shank's natural. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it was just karma. Maybe. Maybe it was just credit karma. Um, (laughs) 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 Dude, should we get into quickies? Yes, let's do it. All right, you start this week. Okay, so Jen, I'm curious to hear what you think about this one. So, okay, so an Instagram star has come under fire for posting a photo of her husband holding a sign which suggests that doing housework will help him get lucky in the bedroom. So uh, this this Instagram star, her name is Bree Dietz, and she shared a photo on Bree Dietz. Bree Dietz. (laughs) That's a fun name. Uh, It is a fun fun name. name. Um, And you can find her on Instagram at Bree Dietz. Dietz. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But so the sign that he's holding, he's holding like one of those – Boards, you know, I'm talking about those blackboards. A sign reads, helping with housework so you can get lucky is called chore play. And then she captioned the pic, nothing hotter, any other acts of service love languages out there, mine 100%. The post was liked more than 12,000 times and has hundreds of comments, but it totally divided women. Like some were agreeing with her. Other people found it highly offensive. One woman was like, yes, it's such a turn on for me. And also a win-win because it means I've got more time to spend with my man instead of doing cleaning and laundry. And then another woman wrote, my husband said to me yesterday, is there anything else I can do after checking a bunch of things off my to-do list? Totally chore play. 
Uh, but of course, a lot of people thought that it was bullshit and like they should uh, already be doing it. Yeah. Like, so one woman wrote chore play. No, it's his house too. Equals mean you both pull your weight because you're equal, not because of chore play. True equality is what's sexy. And another person um, was like, what the fuck? Helping with housework? Stop teaching women that if men do housework, it's helping and they should be rewarded. They aren't children. It's 50% their responsibility. Is this from the 50s? So you get it. And then somebody else wrote, things that are hotter, not expecting a reward for doing your share around the house. (laughs) Yeah. And then her followers, of course, like, were, you know, they're mad at the people who are mad. So they're like, don't get mad. Hilarious letter boards are like Bree's thing. And then, so I looked at her account and she does <laughs> do a lot of pictures of letter boards with like funny quotes on it. But I think what the offensive part is to me is that she didn't even write that quote herself. She totally just took it from someone else. And that's the worst that's, fucking part. That's the worst fucking part is that that's all of her letter board quotes where she's like all these you know, hilarious, like it's just her or her husband or her kids like holding a letter board. And then she writes some quote from someone else and then like doesn't even credit, like, doesn't acknowledge, doesn't credit them. Isn't like, I'm like, she's not hilarious. She just knows how to put fucking letters on a letter board. Okay. That's the unforgivable offense is influencers <laughs> that take other people's creative ideas, pass them off as their own and take all the credit. You yes. know what? I was just saying, we watch, okay. And I highly recommend, especially right now during the quarantine, we watch America's Funniest Videos on the reg. Oh, it's my God. It classic. is the best. It's It'll withstand the test of time. Yeah. It's such a good show. <laughs> we watch it all the time. And there was an episode last week where there was – and I, I the guy, I think, even won. But it showed cutting his dog's – clipping his dog's toenails by putting peanut butter on his head and the dog – was like licking his head and he was clipping the toenails. Yeah. Very funny. Obviously, it's on the show. But now I have seen since that show aired, I have seen on Facebook and Instagram two young hot girl influencers doing the same thing. <gasps> I and just people saw are that going too. crazy for it. And yeah. I was like, bullshit, because I just saw that on AFB. And it was like <laughs> an older man that right. did it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's just like, come on now. Like, at least hashtag it like the challenge or whatever that everybody's right. doing. But don't act like you invented it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's my – that's my. I mean, I think it's lame that – I think the quote is lame. I think it's dumb. I agree with the people. But I also am like, whatever, fucking do what you want. It is the taking something that's not hers and passing it off like she's some hilarious – comic and oh she's such a funny lady it's like no you just know how to search things on the internet like what yeah to be and fair it, we do mm-hmm. do that with our stories <laughs> <laughs> but we always credit the writers always 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 <laughs> yeah we know how to google too brie <laughs> oh man all right i like it what, what do like you got okay what you got my quickie for this week. Actually, my quickie is very sweet this week. I have a nice, <gasps> sweet, lovely, lovey quickie, and it's from Essence Magazine, um, written by Jasmine Grant. This just came uh-huh. out a couple of days ago, and this article is about quarantine proposals that prove love never fail. I'm only going to read a couple, but there's a bunch of adorable stories about people that got engaged 
throughout the quarantine. One story is a woman named Coriel, whose fiance set up what she thought was going to be a movie date at a drive-in theater, but instead it turned out to be a staycation at a beautiful loft. And he decorated the rooftop with roses, romantic candles, and he had chocolate cake flown in from her favorite restaurant, which was uh, Portillo's in Chicago. Yeah. And that's where he proposed to her and she said, yes, of course. And then it said afterward, the couple dined on, I love this, vegan brunch. (laughs) (laughs) but she said uh god bless me with my best friend in the whole world who i get to hang out with forever and i am so thankful so sweet very Um, sweet and then here is another one says before the outbreak uh aisha and kelton planned a weekend getaway in montauk new york they had to make the hard decision the week before to self-isolate because Aisha actually has type 1 diabetes and they were worried mm-hmm. that she is a greater risk for getting COVID-19. Kelton suggested that he cook them a romantic dinner while she made the drinks and on dining what Aisha calls the best dinner he's ever made. Then they went to the living room, which they referred to as hashtag club couch. <laughs> and then Kelton turned on the music and then revealed the real reason he wanted to have a quote unquote date night was because he wanted to propose. And she said, it was perfect for me. I wasn't into the idea of a huge public proposal. And I love that it was just us. It reflected our ability to always find the silver lining. So I love that. Yeah. So there's a a few different stories. You can read them here um, on essence.com article written by Jasmine Grant. See, we credit our writer, the people that actually wrote the articles. (laughs) (laughs) So definitely check them out. If you want to read some happiness, there's some really, really sweet stories on there. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a crazy story? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going crazy over here. This is the story of the unicorn killer. <gasps> Do you know it? No. Okay. Okay. So I got uh, my information from an article in The Guardian, NBC News, The Los Angeles Times, Salon.com, and The Philadelphia Inquirer. On the morning of June 13th, 1997, on the outskirts of a picturesque village of Champagne-Moton in the southwest of France, I'm 1,000% sure I did not say that right, but let's pretend. Um, Sounds French. Did it sound French? Sounds Uh, French. Oui, oui, oui. (laughs) I only speak un peu. So Eugene Melon and his wife were still in bed. They'd moved to France four years earlier and had settled into a quiet life Villagers understood that Eugene was a writer from England. He, They said he was nice, but he didn't speak any English. But they said he always smiled when they saw him. And his wife, Annika, was friendly and well-liked around town. And although the two mostly kept to themselves, but they came in town twice a week to get the English newspaper or to do the shopping. So people were pretty surprised when on that morning, which was Friday the 13th, 12 police officers wearing body armor and carrying firearms burst into Eugene and Annika's home, yanked Eugene out of bed, and (gasps) took him to prison for a murder he had allegedly committed 20 years earlier. Whoa. Okay. It turns out Eugene Milan wasn't Eugene Milan. 
His name was actually Ira Einhorn, and he was one of America's most wanted fugitives. Holy shit. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so Ira was famous even before he was a wanted criminal. He was born into a middle-class Jewish family in 1940, but by the 1960s and 70s, he had become a prominent anti-war and environmental activist in Philadelphia. He was apparently brilliant. He was a student at the University of Pennsylvania, and he like kind of hobnobbed with a lot of the great – I can't believe I said hobnobbed, but um, he knew. <laughs> he hobby-nobbed. <laughs> he was hobbing and nobbing. He was and nobbing. <laughs> with a lot of the great influencers of that generation. So authors like Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. He hung out with celebrities like Peter Gabriel, and he was part of the Yippie movement, which was – uh, the Youth International Parties, including their founders, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. So the Yippie movement was like a counterculture offshoot of the free speech and anti-war movements of the 1960s. So Ira was magnetic, apparently. They said, everybody said he just had a way of drawing you in. And so he was not just leading this left-wing movement in Philadelphia, but he was also he had somehow convinced corporations and government to buy into his brand of ecological awareness. He apparently during his time he like ran for mayor, he organized beat-ins and earth days wow. and sun weeks. He mediated disputes between students and the city police and between local residents and big business. Um, one of his friends during that time said, in those days, he was part of everything that was happening in Philadelphia. Everybody knew Ira, and he knew everybody. He had a lot of magnetism, and he drew people into his orbit. Um, this woman, Kiki Olson, who was a writer who knew him, said, he was a guru like there have never been gurus. I mean, people, important people, just used to sit at his smelly feet. The Beatles had gone to India, but others couldn't afford to do that, so they went to Ira. Oh my God, it's always the gurus. Mm-hmm. It's always the gurus. It's always the gurus. Oh uh, a friend from school said it was this unique combination of not only knowledge, but imagination. When you sat and talked to him, you came away with a vision of the future that you had never conceived. And he was called the Prince of Flower Power, Guru of Peace and Love. And then some of his followers called him Unicorn because his last name was Einhorn, which means one horn in German. So he was actually a speaker at the very first Earth Day rally in 1970. Okay, so in 1972, he started dating a woman named Holly Maddox. And Holly was this really beautiful, blonde, tiny woman from Tyler, Texas, who had been a cheerleader growing up. But then she had kind of undergone her own transformation. After she graduated from Bryn Mawr College, she had started becoming involved in the women's liberation movement. And that's how she met Ira. And I think kind of like a lot of so-called progressive, peace-loving white guys, while Ira was like out there espousing nonviolence and all these hippie ideals on the outside, on the inside and in private, he was this violent misogynist abuser of when course. it came to the women he was involved with, right? Of um, course. Of course, right? It's like not surprising to anyone. He was physically abusive with Holly. He demanded that they had this open relationship, and yet he was constantly belittling her and breaking up with her and then drawing her back in. And it turns out that this was like a pattern. He had been accused of assaulting former girlfriends too. There was one woman who he had smashed a soft drink bottle on her head. 
Oh my God. Um, and then he had tried to strangle another woman. And so Holly eventually decided to leave Ira. She, you know, she met him when she was young. He was this guru. She was very impressionable. But as she got older over the five years, she was becoming more of an independent person and she was finally able to break away from him. So she told her friends that she had to get her own life and that she was moving out. And in 1977, she moved to New York City and started a relationship with a man named Saul Lapidus, who by all accounts was a kind and gentle person. And she called Ira in September of 1977 to officially cut things off with him. And he was furious. He demanded that she come to immediately to Philadelphia to get her belongings and said if she didn't come right away, he would throw everything out. And so she left for Philadelphia on September 9th, 1977, and nobody heard from her again. Oh, no. Yeah. So this was, of course, like before cell phones. So at first, her disappearance wasn't noticed because people in Philadelphia were like, oh, she moved. People in New York didn't know her that well. It was noticed not right away, but pretty soon after because her family started to worry because they didn't hear from her after she didn't call her mom on her birthday, which was totally out of character. Um So her family called the police, and the police initially questioned Ira, but he said she'd been here, but we'd broken up. She'd gone out to the neighborhood co-op to buy some tofu and sprouts and never returned. And then that was that. Like, they just were like, okay, great. And because of his status in the community, he wasn't even really considered a suspect. And they just kind of considered Holly a missing person and thought that maybe she just ran off. You know, like women do. Yeah, how they just leave their lives. Um, to go get sprouts and tofu. Right. Like, and once then are we just get like, the sprouts and tofu, we're out of here. <laughs> That's all I need That's to make a new life want. for myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so time went on. Police came up with nothing. And in the meantime, Ira continued on with his activism. He actually went on speaking tours. He even took a semester-long fellowship at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And Holly's family, though, of course, felt like police were not doing enough. So they hired two former FBI agents as private detectives to investigate Holly's disappearance. And over 18 months, the private investigators gathered evidence. They found that Ira had asked friends to help him get rid of a trunk which he told them were full of secret documents. And I guess they did not. And then they got reports from Ira's downstairs neighbors who said that there had been a putrid and rancid brown liquid. Oh, no. That was leaking through Ira's floorboards and into their kitchen. That neighbor also reported hearing a blood-curdling scream and several sharp thuds around the same time of ho- that Holly disappeared. Oh, God. So the detectives took this to police who decided that they had enough circumstantial evidence to get a search warrant for Ira's apartment. And on March 28, 1979, Detective Mike Chitwood led a search of Ira's apartment. Detective Chitwood found a locked closet door and was like, what's in there? And Ira was like, I don't know. I don't have a key. And so they pried it open. And when they found <gasps> a, ste- a large steamer trunk... And inside that were some newspapers dating from the week of Holly's disappearance. Beneath the papers were plastic bags, a layer of air fresheners, and a layer of styrofoam. And when the detective moved some of the packing material, he saw a human hand. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it was the decomposing body of Holly Maddox. Oh, my God. 
And then when he was arrested, Detective Chitwood said, it looks like we found the body of Holly. And Ira reportedly just shrugged and told police, you found what you found. Holy shit. Yeah. What an <sighs> asshole. Oh, what yeah, an that's asshole. chilling because it's like yeah. so disconnected from any emotion. Right? And <sighs> just it, it, he, there's is a person who's been living with a dead body. Yeah. So because no, not surprised at all. Just like. Yeah. Well, you found what you found. But so, but because of his fame, the community rallied around him. At his bail hearing, priests, university professors, and company directors testified to his nonviolence, his gentleness, his peacefulness, and his good works. He was released pending trial on a payment of just $40,000, which is like just crazy low. Yeah. Yeah. And his defense attorney was actually Arlen Specter, who you might know as like a longtime U.S. senator from Pennsylvania. I don't. Um, <laughs> you don't. I was like, how do I know that name? And I was like, oh, oh he was like for like 50 years <laughs> was a U.S. senator. Actually, Ira told everyone that he was being framed, that he was going to be found innocent, and that the whole thing was a conspiracy by the CIA or FBI. And people believed him. But then on January 21st, 1981, right before his pretrial hearing, Ira Einhorn disappeared and he was gone for 17 years. Holy shit. He became known as the unicorn killer. So over the years- So when he left, did did people assume like, oh, because he's guilty or were they still like, our guru? I think it was a mix of both because there were some people who were still aiding him. Mm-hmm. While he was on the run, like this woman who there was a woman who paid his bail and then kind of funded him while he was on the run. She was married to the heir of the Seagrams, like Seagrams Jen. So like wine coolers. Yeah, I think so. Or is it Jen? Yeah, Seagrams. I don't know. No, I think coolers? I think Seagrams makes seven and sevens, which are, is Jen. I, I just remember Seagrams. I'm gonna Google it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Seagrams. like maybe they did everything. I bet they did it all. No, they do. They do. They have Seagram's escapes. Mm. Those are like wine coolers. I bet I drank those in high school. I know. That's why I was just like, I know I partied with some Seagram's before. <laughs> but yes, they do make gin. They make gin. Oh, okay. Well. Look at that. Okay. We're both right. I love that. <laughs> because of who he was and because he preached so much about kind of CIA conspiracies and counterculture that people thought, yeah, that makes sense that he would be framed, I guess. So over the years, police actually came close to catching him a few times. In 1985, he was traced to Dublin, Ireland, where he was going under the name of Ben Moore. There was no extradition treaty between Ireland and the United States. And so before anything could be put in place, he fled. And then in 1998, that woman, Barbara Bromfen, who had been sending him money over the years, actually had a change of heart. She was like, oh, maybe he was guilty. And so she told the police, oh, I've actually been sending him money. I sent him money to Stockholm, and he's there living with a woman named Annika Floden. But by the time Swedish police got to the apartment, he was gone. So I'm guessing that probably Barbara Bromfen probably also tipped him off. All of this time, Mm. there's this growing pressure in Philadelphia 
to do something about Holly's murder because they know he's out there. The police just can't catch him. So in 1993, District Attorney Lynn Abraham decided to bring him to trial in absentia, which is basically he's going to trial without him being there. So it's a very rare legal procedure, and it was actually the only time it's ever been done in Philadelphia. Ira was represented by a defense attorney, Norris Gelman, but it took the jury only two hours after the trial to convict him of first-degree murder and sentence him to life in prison. Good. Um, but they still didn't, didn't have, have him. him. Yeah. So, But in 1997, a Philadelphia police detective who had never stopped looking for Ira got a lucky break. So they were told by a Swedish Interpol officer that French authorities were trying to verify a driving license application for a woman named... Mrs. Eugene Milan. And the woman's original Swedish driving license was in the name of Annika Fluden, who was the woman that Ira had been living with in Sweden. And wow. Eugene Milan, by no coincidence, was the name of a Dublin bookseller who Irish detectives had interviewed several times because he was a close friend of Ira's in Ireland. So it turns out Ira had assumed his friend's identity and married this woman, Annika Floden. So police from Philadelphia sent pictures to the French police and they were like, yep, that's him. So so now that brings us back to the raid on Ira and Annika's home in France. So Ira was arrested, but then before he could be extradited, the French government intervened. Because in Europe, anyone who is tried in absentia has to be allowed a retrial if they're ever found. But that wasn't the law in Pennsylvania. Basically, they were going to bring him back and be like, you've already been tried, so you go to life for prison, or you go to prison for life. So a French judge refused to extradite Ira. So then the Pennsylvania legislature passed a law called the Einhorn Law, which would allow Ira to be retried if he was sent back to the U.S., So now it's 1999, and France agreed to extradite him, but they said that Ira could appeal, which would take up to two years. So on December 1st of 1999, District Attorney Lynn Abraham wrote to then-Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and was like, I need you to intervene with the French government. She was like, Ira Einhorn is free, convorting in the nude for an Esquire photographer, free on bail, eating strawberries, and blaming the CIA for Holly's murder. In between the time he was arrested and extradited, he was just living his life, living this carefree lifestyle in France, and he was giving tons of interviews to U.S. reporters. (gasps) And so people back in Philadelphia are seeing this, and they're just like, what the fuck is going on? So, Oh, my God. So people in the U.S. were so upset. But throughout France, human rights advocates were actually supporting Ira. They basically said the question of Ira's guilt was not a concern. It was these legal issues of his extradition. So um, the lawyers and politicians were like, we don't care if he's guilty or what evidence. The question is the U.S. justice system is flawed, which is true. But they were like, there's the death penalty there. They also thought the American press had already judged Ira as guilty before trial. And then they said that they didn't think that Ira could get a fair trial because of his counterculture activity. So the question made its way up to the prime minister of France, who in the summer of 2001, four years after his arrest in France, finally signed the extradition order. Wow. So then just before he was set to be extradited, 
when he knew that French reporters were scheduled to come to his house, Ira slit his own throat with a kitchen knife. (gasps) And the wounds were deep, but not life-threatening. And so on July 19th of 2001, with his neck bandaged, Ira was escorted by U.S. Marshals back to the United States 23 years after he fled. Holy shit. So in 2002, he was tried again, and he at the end of the trial, he took the stand in his own defense. And he again, he blamed the CIA for Holly's murder. He claimed that they were getting back at him for his own investigations into the Cold War. But because he took the stand, the prosecution was able to get into evidence Ira's own diaries from the time when he was with Holly. And he's such a narcissist that like he wrote everything in his diaries. I mean, he didn't say I killed her, but he said the diaries revealed that he was angry and jealous at the prospect of Holly leaving him for another man. And then they also detailed his abuse of other women. So one diary entry concerned this woman, Judith Sabat, who was the former girlfriend who said that Ira had hit her over the head with a Coke bottle mm-hmm. and then tried to strangle her when her relationship ended. And he wrote, violence creeps over my body when I reach towards the destruction of, when I reach towards the destruction of Judy, violence always marks the end of a relationship. Oh my God. And then- I'm surprised that he didn't represent himself. Did he represent himself? He didn't represent himself, but yeah, it is kind of, that it seems like- Seems like something he would do. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he insisted on taking the stand because he'd been telling everybody- forever that, you know, I didn't do this. He also said about another woman who he allegedly strangled named Rita Resnick, his diary said, to beat a woman, what a joy. (gasps) And then the next day he wrote, to kill what you love when you can't have it seems so natural that strangling Rita last night seemed so right. Holy shit. Yeah. Apparently he was like, oh, I'm talking about, this is like metaphorical violence. Oh my God. And the prosecutor was like, yeah, most of us don't hit our girlfriends with Coke bottles. It's That's not metaphorical. So yeah. the jury once again found him guilty after, again, after only two hours of deliberation. At that point, he was 62 and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And then in 2010, Ira contacted a reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer who went to visit him for his first interview after he got convicted. And I want to read just like a little bit of what he wrote. He was like, I'm pleased to find that Einhorn, whose intellectually hungry followers used to devour his perceptions, then clamor for more, says that he is virtually ignored now that he is prisoner number ES6859. Hell yeah. During our five-hour visit, he complains that most of the copious letters he writes to this genius author or that groundbreaking professor in hope of stirring delightful discussion, go unanswered. I'm a pariah, he says, self-pityingly, oblivious to the possibility that his being a murderer might limit his pool of willing pen pals. Once you're in prison, it's as if you no longer exist. He seems to expect me to cluck in sympathy. Instead, I feel satisfaction for the family of Holly Maddox, whom he put through hell. For a narcissistic gas bag like Einhorn, being irrelevant is a punishment more cruel and unusual than death. So Ira Einhorn actually ended up serving 17 years in prison, and then he died on April 3rd of this year of natural causes at age 79 in a Pennsylvania state prison, and they say it's not related to COVID-19, but. 
Who oh, knows? Who knows? So wow. there you go. That's, That's the unicorn crazy. killer. What a piece of shit. What, what a piece, a piece, of, piece shit. of shit. Oh my yeah. God. Man, so that's two pieces of shit that died in prison on this episode. Yeah. See you later. Of natural causes. Quote unquote. You guys, natural causes, they're going to come and get you. <laughs> Dang. Don't be a murdering. Hey, dum dums. What are you doing Friday, May 8th at 8 30 p.m. Eastern Time? Joining us for our second Dumb Love Zoom stand up comedy show? That's what I thought. We had so much fun at the first one that we're doing it again with a whole new lineup of comedians from Comedy Central, Late Night TV, and more. Just like last time, all you have to do is go to our website, dumblovepodcast.com, donate any amount, and we'll send you the link. All donations go directly to the performers who are all out of work. So mark your calendars for May 8th, and we'll see you on the interwebs. Hey, Sally. Yes, Jen. Are you ready for a love story? Ah, uh, you know, I love a love story. Why I know. do you keep asking? <laughs> Guess what? This is a, another coronavirus love story. That's what, okay, you guys, love stories have been hard for us to find. We have to dig, we have to search, we have to beg people to send in stories. But the silver lining, I guess, you know, just like how like turtles are repopulating and dolphins are swimming in Venice and uh-huh. the skies are clearing up. In LA, love stories are happening. Yeah, all the time. Like, and people need happy things, and so yeah. now they're writing about it. <laughs> we're getting all these coronavirus love stories, and it's just so heartening. It is heartening. There, you it can, is right. Yes, this is a story for the New York Times that just came out this week, and it was uh, written by Patrick Kingsley. Nice. And this is a story about an elderly couple that even though they are in two different countries and cannot cross the border, they find a way to keep the romance alive. Love it. Very sweet. Okay. You know what? I mean, I love a love story, but there's nothing I love more than old people love stories. (laughs) That's my fave. I know. It's very (laughs) sweet. So 89-year-old retired farmer, Karsten Tuchsen Hansen. So we'll just call him Karsten from yeah. <laughs> and Inga Rasmussen, who is an 85-year-old former caterer, meet every single day Mala Husvig border between Denmark and Germany so that they can chat, joke, and drink while maintaining social distance. <laughs> and they do it every day because they love each other. As mm-hmm. um, Karsten says, quote, love is the best thing in the world. So the couple's romance actually started two summers ago. What happened was Karsten was carrying a big bouquet of flowers and was on his way to drop in unannounced on a different elderly Danish widow that he had okay. known for years. Okay, <laughs> Karsten. He's a player. He's a yeah. player. But before he reached her house, he actually met Inga as they were both standing in line at a strawberry stand beside a traffic circle. So he sees this other woman and he's like, oh, hello there. Um, so, <laughs> so he decided that he wasn't going to go visit this other woman. And instead he gave the flowers to Inga 
And then he invited her to dinner in over in Germany. So they both live on this border, like 15 okay. minutes apart from each other. But he is in Germany and she is in Denmark. So he invites her to Germany and then the pair end up g- growing very close. And the article says, much to the surprise of Inga's three daughters who told her, never marry a German. <laughs> but this doesn't... <laughs> It sounds racist, <laughs> but it wasn't xenophobia. It says it was because they wanted her to live close to home. They just didn't oh. want her to move to Germany. Yeah. Uh, but now they're very happy with uh, her situation. So both Inga and Carson had been widowed in recent years after six decades of marriage for each. So each of them had been married for 60 years before they met wow. each other. And they, Yeah, and they both thought that their days of companionship and having another person were over. Inga says that she never dreamed this would happen. But against all expectations, Inga began to visit Carson every day. Thanks to European regulations between Denmark and Germany, it allowed free movement between the countries. So it was like no big deal to pass the border. Mm -hmm. Um, So a normal day for them would be they would cook a meal together and they would talk in a mixture of German and Danish. And then usually... Inga would stay the night. Yeah, Inga. And then she would come home the next day to work. That was her routine. But it came to a halt on March 13th when the Danish government announced that it would close its borders. The only people that could pass back and forth were people traveling for work. She was in Germany with Carson and she didn't want to be locked out of her homeland. So she hurried back to Denmark. They knew that that would be the last time that they would be able to hold each other's hand. They were very sad about that. So they came up with this plan. So there's a quiet street that winds through the farmland between their their two homes. And it's 100 meters from where Karsten was born. And the police only block that tiny little road, a flimsy plastic barrier. So yeah. it's just like a tiny little like, do not cross here. Right. Um, it's, all, it's halfway between both of their homes. So they meet there every day ever since the shutdown at 3 p.m. to have a picnic. Um, they avoid physical contact because we're not supposed to touch each other. But they said, and they said the worst thing is that they can't embrace each other. We can't kiss. We can't make love. But they have found other ways to show their affection every day. Mr. Hansen, Karsten, um, mm-hmm. brings Inga a present. He'll bring her like a bottle of Merlot or something. But which Inga says that she doesn't drink it until she gets home. <laughs> I love they added that in the article. And then in return, Inga will bring him cookies, a cake. Uh, she'll bring him lunch. See, everybody's baking in the quarantine. And so, and he's and he loves that. He says that if there's respect and acceptance, then sex is not so important. Oh. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So sweet. And so the Danish police have threatened them to find them if they see them stray across the border. Uh-huh. But the Danish mayor of a nearby town, Henrik, Henrik Fransen, noticed the couple's routine because he would ride his bike around the border. Mm-hmm. And he saw them and he ended up striking up a conversation with them. And touched by their story, he ended up posting a picture of them on Facebook. And then within days... They became local celebrities and also the focus of reports and local newspapers and radio stations, just like we're doing right now. You know, they're just, yeah. you know, they took off. And so the 
police are easing up on them because the mayor is talking about how wonderful this is of a story. I think it brings people some hope a little bit of light in the darkness. And he said, you have these elderly people who have found a way out. Because of that, their picnic spot has become a site of pilgrimage, it says. (laughs) Uh, So journalists and residents from both sides of the border, you guys, social distancing, get away from their spot. So they're all, all these people are showing up now to see this adorable couple, how they get to see each other and meet up. They want to see it in person, but which is so great and so sweet, but also like back off their spot, dudes. That's theirs. <laughs> and it says that everybody has loved the hearing about the story and everybody thinks it's great, except Kirsten Hansen, who is actually the woman that oh, the, the woman he was supposed, was supposed to, bring. to bring the bouquet to two summers ago. She's like, <laughs> wait a second. She said, hey, she, well, she's like joking when she says right. this. She she says she hadn't known of his intentions. You know, he didn't even tell her he was coming over. She didn't know about it until she saw the news coverage. And uh, it says, hey, she said laughing, those flowers were meant for me. <laughs> so, and then that's the, that's the story. That's really Inga sweet. And Karsten. Isn't it so sweet? The yeah. The picture is very sweet. Yeah. So on at the picture of them having a picnic, though, they're sitting on the same side of the border. Those troublemakers. Those outlaws. Yeah, but they're they're like not touching each other. They're sitting across from a table in two chairs, but they are on the same side of the border. Mm-hmm. Just saying. uh, (laughs) well then i'm against it never mind i changed my mind (laughs) fuck those people hey (laughs) those cute old people it's what they'll do for love (laughs) oh Um, yeah i think it's great no it is great that's very sweet hey sally yeah jen should we do something dumb something i love or something Um, i love something dumb no Something dumb, something I love. <laughs> what is it? Get your story straight. Always, always end with love. Always end with love. Okay, Come on, you Jen. go first. You go first. <laughs> We're falling apart here. I can't. Um, all right. So my something dumb is um, I'm not doing coronavirus things because that's the dumbest. Okay. As is our governor in Georgia. Real dumb. Very but dumb. I'm going to say that I... What's dumb is that I forget to appreciate Dolly Parton as much as she should be appreciated. I know that everybody God loves Dolly Parton. Bless her. But there's a reason for that because she is amazing. And I just read this article, something I love is that did you know that Dolly Parton was an uncredited producer on Buffy the Vampire Slayer? No. Isn't that awesome? Oh my God. I wonder if Ian Aber knows that. I don't know. He's, We're going to have to tell him. His, him and his husband, Payne. Payne especially, a huge Jolly fan. And I know that Ian is a huge Buffy fan. So I got to – we got to tell him. We got to tell him. We got What are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hop on the horn. But I just read this article that said that – so her production company was actually the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie and then they were like we think there's something else here so they were the ones who were responsible for (gasps) starting the um for bringing it to a series and actually buffy the vampire slayer buffy summers her birthday is january 19th 
in the series, and that is Dolly Parton's birthday, and so oh. it was a tribute to her. My God, it's been Dolly this whole time. It's been Dolly this whole time. That is blowing my mind. <laughs> Holy so, shit. I mean, there you go. That's that's the thing I love. Is, oh, my God. You know, I you learn that. a new thing, and Dolly Parton is better than we even thought. Dang. I now don't love mine. Oh. Um, <laughs> well, I do. Uh, okay. It's important. My something dumb is the people that are protesting the quarantine. I feel like it's a slap in the face to healthcare workers Mm -hmm. um, that have been putting, losing their lives and putting their lives on the line and working in crazy environments and not sleeping and working like 24 hour shifts. It's away from their family trying to make it so that we are safe. Right. And then people are protesting that and wanting to go out. And that's exactly what they've been working. It's against everything that they've been working so hard for. Right. Um, so what I wanted to say for something I love is um, healthcare workers. Thank you. Thank you for everything that you've been doing. I see pictures on Facebook and Instagram of people that I don't know, people that I know, um, Kate Jensen, Jeanette Married, Aaron, Ren, Anwar Osborne. It's like I'm just shouting out names. All of, all of thank you guys so much for everything that you're doing. We love you. And there are ways for people that people are helping healthcare workers. There's a way that you can donate to feed healthcare workers and feed their families. So that's one last thing that they have to worry about. Yeah, that's um, awesome. And I think that that's really awesome. There's all these organizations. I'm just going to read a couple. Uh, feed the Frontlines. There's one for New York City and there's one for LA. The Girl Scouts of America have set up a way that you can feed healthcare workers and meals for Chicago and fuel the fight. And then there's also a thing that people are doing where they're sending self-care packages to healthcare workers, hand sanitizer, but also things like bubble bath and bath bombs and bottles of wine and just stuff to where they, when they are home and when they do get a break, that they can really pamper themselves and take care of themselves, which I think is great. Yeah. There are many different organizations for this, but one in particular is a woman uh, named Sabrina Langeninger from Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, who has a beauty and skincare company called La Cerise. And she has been making self-care boxes for doctors and nurses working long shifts. And you can find her on her website and you can find out more information on how to donate at lacerisshop.com. Awesome. So I love that. Yeah. I My neighborhood has actually been collecting money and feeding healthcare workers at Emory and um, the hospitals in near our neighborhood. And cause we have a lot of healthcare workers who live in our neighborhood. And so, yeah, so they've like collected thousands of dollars. It's great. And just, I love all the, the groundswell of support for people doing really important and scary work. And I wanted to say actually another one of our listeners and one of my friends, um, her name is Myra. She is a nurse. You just saying that made me think she had just posted this thing about her team. She works at the University of Cincinnati Healthcare Center or Medical Center. And she talked about her team who had a woman come in who was seven months pregnant and had COVID-19 and had to be intubated. And then she they had to deliver her baby while she was and in a coma, wow. medically induced coma. <gasps> but she has been released. She is recovering and her baby is still in the NICU, but is doing well. And that's something that Myra and her team 
of nurses and doctors helped help this woman and her baby survive. And it's just amazing. Oh, that is amazing. Thank you. Yes. Too. Thank you. Yes. Also, you know, rate and review. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, do do that, but also, um, <laughs> you know. Well, guys, that's a show. That's a show. That's I, a what show. A, we what, did a show. What a fun one. What a fun one. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing. I just want to say we, we are recording this before our Dumb Love show tonight, but I just want to also say thank you to all of our listeners who have donated to the performers. You guys are have been so generous. And so generous. We thank are, you. Oh, my God. Yeah. We are blown away by just your uh, your willingness to come to the show. We're very excited about it. And just your generosity to the performers who uh, appreciate it more than they could even say. So thank you to you guys for being for being generous to us and to our friends. And and yeah, and thank you guys. For now, stay home and do something dumb for love. Dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-